Sure. Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 16, verses 15, or 17 rather, verses 15 through 27, the promise of Isaac. One of the most important chapters in the Abrahamic narratives begins in a rather pedestrian way, revealing Abraham's age. At first glance, this might seem to be a bit mundane, but it is more significant than what we might think. Thirteen years have passed since the Hagar-Sarai debacle, and both husband and wife are not getting any younger. It seems to Abram to be impossible that he would ever have a child through Sarai as she was barren when she was first introduced in chapter 11. And now it's almost 25 years later and the situation looks more hopeless than ever. We might say at this point that God had Abram, now we know him as Abraham, right where he wanted him. The situation is as hopeless as it could possibly be. All all through their youth, there had to be some hope in the back of Abraham's mind. Perhaps this is just a freak of nature, and and maybe Sarai will end up being able to bear children. After after Abram uh, receives the, the promise at 75 years old himself, there still has to be some hope somewhere. And you can see them trying to work the wheels to to see whatever they could do so so Abraham could help God fulfill the promise that he had made to him. And and he tries to adopt Eliezer as his heir. He tries the the whole Hagar and, and Sarai thing. And every time God says, no, that's not it. No, that's not it. Yes, I promise you, but no, that's not the way it's supposed to go. Now, we can see that Abraham should have been able to deduce that if he's going to do the right thing in the right way, that the child would come through Sarai. However, things are looking more and more and more and more hopeless all the time. And it's not until they have become just about as hopeless as they can be, and we'll see in our text today, almost laughingly hopeless, that God steps in and says, Now, now is when I'm going to rescue you. Now is when I'm going to fulfill this promise. And you won't be able to give credit to anybody else or anything else but me. Now, and, and aren't we in that situation a lot too? We pray and we pray and we pray and, and God says, no, wait, 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 wait. And finally when we realize, Father, I can't do this. There's no way. He says, that's exactly what I want you to come to. That's the conclusion that if you'd have got a long time ago, we could have settled this and been on our way. But you see, now they're in a totally hopeless situation. So the reference about time is not insignificant there. Thirteen more years have passed, and they were already in trouble before that in terms of the fulfillment of this promise from Abraham's view. Now, Abraham's still going to, for his part, he's still going to rationalize, at least up to this point, that Ishmael must be the promised offspring and has set his hopes on Ishmael totally for the fulfillment of this promise. We're going to see that that's not the case. Chapter 17, one of the most important chapters in Genesis, but chapter 17 is essentially the report of God's revelation of encouragement to Abram within some scattered and brief narrative accounts of Abram's response to this encouragement and to this revelation. In the first eight verses, El Shaddai, translated in most of our Bibles, God Almighty, restates the land and the seed aspects of the covenants made previously with Abram, and twice these provisions are said to be everlasting. The land and the seed aspects of the Abrahamic covenant 
are unilateral and unconditional. God has obligated himself apart from any obedience. He has obligated himself to fulfill this course of action. And it's not going to depend in any way upon the response of Abram or his descendants for its fulfillment. And this is a, this is a fine theological point, but it's an important theological point. It is, not, it is not conditioned in any way upon the response of Abram or his descendants for its fulfillment. But it is very conditioned from Abram's side and from the descendants' side in, in, in terms of their enjoyment of this blessing. But it's going to be fulfilled whether they obey or not. For them to enjoy the blessing, they have to obey. They have to exercise the same faith that Abraham had. So, looking at it from the side of Abram and his offspring. We've been looking at it from God's side the whole time. But if we turn it around and look at it from Abram's side and from his offspring's side, their enjoyment of this blessing would be dependent upon faithful obedience. But the blessings themselves will become a reality regardless of the response of those involved. To put it another way, just because one is born Jewish, just because one has the genetics of Abraham, it does not mean that they as individuals will enjoy the blessings of the covenant. Many Jews, in fact most Jews, have rejected their Messiah and have failed to exercise the faith of Father Abraham. After, after I started learning about the Abrahamic covenant and the overflow of blessings to the racial seed of Abraham, even, even if they can't really enjoy it, I got to thinking, boy, I really wish I had some Jewish blood in me. My, my brother looked, looked into it a little bit, and, and he's convinced that we do. I'm, I'm not sure he's got any real hard evidence, but he's convinced that we do. And for a little while, I was walking around like a banny rooster thinking, you know what? I've got a little bit Abrahamic blood in me, too. I'm going to get extra special blessing. But actually, we're under, we're under a different series of blessings in the church age. And we are, I am rightly related to Jesus Christ by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. So whether, we, whether you have Jewish blood flowing in you or not is not really an, an issue, uh, positively or negatively. Some people think it's a negative issue. Heaven forbid uh, that, they, that anybody would ever think that. But when we, when we speak of, of people who are Jews in name only, I guess you have a, a rhino is a, a Republican in name only, so this would be a, whatever you would do the acronym for that, a, a Jew in, in name only. Um, those in that category do enjoy some of the overflow of the blessings promised to Abraham. Or we, sometimes people have called this in the past, blessing by association with Abraham. But again, their enjoyment of that blessing will be severely limited. Severely limited. In the, in the same way, if you have a, an ultra, ultra, ultra wealthy person, and that ultra wealthy person has children, Let's, let's just take uh, Bill Gates. I don't know Bill Gates, but I think Bill Gates has children now. But let, let's just say Bill Gates does indeed have children, and Bill Gates is richest, one of the richest men in the world. And there are certain benefits that are going to come just from being his child. Well, let's just say, and I hope this never happens, but let's just say one or more of his children end up rebelling against God, rebelling against him, rebelling against society and authority, and ends up being in, in jail. Well, there may, have been some, there may have been some blessing that would have been passed on just by being the, the son or daughter of a wealthy father, but they're not going to enjoy that blessing because the choices they've made in life eliminate them from that blessing. And see, that's what happens when, when, a, when a Jewish person has, has rejected Jesus as their Messiah. 
whether Old Testament or New, rejected the second person of the Trinity as their Messiah, Yahweh in the Old Testament. But when, when they've done that, they, yes, they, they are entitled to some of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, but they'll never enjoy them because of the decisions that they have made. So that's the, the distinction that we make. In verses 9 through 14, God institutes the rite of circumcision as the sign of the covenant to be practiced by all males in Jewish households, including those who are slaves or foreigners who are not slaves but happen to be living under the umbrella of the protection of that household. The sign of circumcision would be a symbolic reminder to God of the promises that he has made and would serve as a reminder to the seed of Abraham to live in loyalty to the covenant if they intended to enjoy the blessings of the covenant themselves. This ritual would be performed at the instigation of the parents. Now, see, circumcision indicates the obedience of the parents, not the eight-day-old boy. But the circumcision would be performed at the instigation of the parents as a result of their faith and a desire to be associated with Abraham and the covenant. We see this play out centuries later, 2,000 years later, essentially, with Joseph and Mary. As they comply, as obedient parents, they comply with this mandate and have Jesus circumcised on the eighth day. This is an outward expression of Joseph and Mary's inward conviction of faith, faith in Yahweh. So we see them being obedient. Now, one of the, we didn't talk about this last week, but one of the remarkable side issues, if I could call it that, about the process, uh, the whole process of circumcision, is the prescription to perform it on the eighth day, the eighth day of a young infant boy's life. Other cultures that practice circumcision didn't practice it on the eighth day. They, generally, they practiced it as a teenager, perhaps by the time the boy was 18, sometimes even as an adult. But, um, in fact, most were circumcised probably in their late teens. This is what's interesting about this side issue, if I may call it that. Vitamin K, that we all know about today, wasn't discovered until 1929. 1929. This put Abraham essentially in about the year 2000 B.C., give or take. Vitamin K is not discovered until 1929. It's not named until 1935. And it wasn't until 1974 that it was realized by medical science and research that vitamin K is responsible through the liver for the production of an element known as prothrombin. If vitamin K is deficient, there will be a prothrombin deficiency and hemorrhaging is more likely to occur in an individual. Oddly, and get this, oddly it's through the fifth through the seventh day of a newborn male's life that vitamin K begins to be present and adequate quantities to produce prothrombin, not to the fifth to the seventh day. Then vitamin K, coupled with this other element known as prothrombin, come together, and that's what causes blood to coagulate. That's, what's, that's one of the things that keeps you from being a, a bleeder. Two researchers, Holt and McIntosh, in an older classic textbook on medicine, particularly pediatrics, observed that a newborn infant, the infant has, and I quote here, Peculiar susceptibility to bleeding between the second and the fifth days of life. Are you getting this? Hemorrhages at this time, though often inconsequential, are sometimes extensive. They may produce serious damage to internal organs, especially to the brain, 
and can cause death from shock and excessive bleeding. That was written in 1953. That's a pediatric textbook from 1953. Obviously then, and I've ended their quote now, but obviously then, if vitamin K is not produced in sufficient quantities until days 5 through 7, it would be wise to postpone any surgery on an infant until sometime after that. But we still have to ask a question, why did God specify day 8? And here's the thing that's going to blow you away. Some of you have heard this before. Some of you are in medicine and already know this. But it's on the 8th day of a male's life and only on the 8th day. This is the only day of a male's life where prothrombin levels will be at 110% of their normal. The only day in a baby boy's life where prothrombin levels will be over the norm, specifically 110% above norm, is on the eighth day of that baby's life. You think God knew what he was doing. Again, Abraham lived in 2000 B.C., give or take. This wasn't discovered, at least not in its fullest sense, until 1974. God knew exactly what he was doing. The the creator prescribed it 4,000 years ago. I wonder how Richard Dawkins would explain that away. How would Peter Atkins rationalize that fact? I don't know. There are, if I did the math correctly, 6,750 days in an individual's life up until the age of 15. And evolutionary biologists expect us to buy the fact, that they would say is a fact, that the Jews just happened to pick out one of those 6,750 days with no, no knowledge of vitamin K or prothrombin or anything with regard to human physiology at that time, very little anyway. They just happened to pick out the one, if we, this is just if we took the first 18 years of life, they just happened to pick out the one day of those 6,750 days that prothrombin levels would be 110% of normal and the perfect day to perform a circumcision. The perfect day. Now, just in case you're you're wondering about your own infant child, today I'm told, and I I could be correct on this, but I'm told that today in the hospital, if they're going to do a circumcision on the first or second day of life, they inject vitamin K in. So that's that's how they've taken care of that. So you don't have to to worry about that. But, But I don't know what Dawkins and Atkins and people like that are thinking. And listen, the only, way I'm, the only reason I'm so hard on them particularly are those people who feel that way is because they are evangelists for atheism. And they're out there saying that those in the Christian community, actually they broaden it to anybody in the religious community, is, is something of the equivalent of an intellectual Neanderthal, and they're the ones that are exercising this intellectual brilliance. Well, Richard, explain that one to me. And that's just one. That that doesn't count the dozens upon dozens upon dozens of other things that are unexplainable apart from God. They're the ones that are intellectually bankrupt. And I say that without apology. Because if you have the facts right before you that are plain as as, as plain as your face in a mirror, and you still refuse, you refuse to believe that, the scriptures call you a fool. The fool is the one who has said in his heart, there is no God. I pray that Richard Dawkins would turn around before it's too late. 
Now, in our passage today, beginning in verse 15, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be the mother of nations, kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Have you ever talked to somebody and they, they, they're talking about an argument they've had with somebody and, and they just tell you how they just really chewed that person out and it was just really, and said, Man, I can't believe you said that. Did you really say that? No, I didn't say that, but I was thinking that. You know? <laughs> that's, that's what I should have said. That's what I was thinking. That's kind of what Abraham's doing here. I want you to notice that when he laughed, he, he says these things in his heart. Now, God's going to read them as though he said them out loud. But this, this no, that's what, I want, that's what I wanted to say. But no, uh, he, he, was smart, he was a little too smart to actually say it out loud, but he's going to get caught anyway because God reads their thoughts. Now, as a sign that God would bless Sarai, God changes her name to Sarah. I love that name, Sarah. It's a, it's a beautiful name. Both names, both names probably mean princess or some form of it. Some have speculated that Sarai means my princess and Sarah means something like royal princess. Perhaps, but it really is difficult to say with any kind of certainty. In the past... I have presented that Sarai meant something like contentious and was somewhat descriptive of her personality. But that was most likely wrong. The evidence for that is much more shaky than I once presumed, and I've come to reject that idea altogether. So if you've heard the older tapes on Genesis, they were supposed to have been pulled, but if you happen to have one of those older tapes on Genesis... And you remember that, my apologies. They're really, the, the evidence that Sarai means contentious or that her daddy named her that, it was always confusing to me why a daddy would name a daughter contentious girl. But, but um, anyway, my apologies for that. Uh, I, both names probably mean princess or something like it. The, the names are very, very similar in their pronunciation. But more importantly than, the, than what the terms Sarai and Sarah mean, more importantly... Abram is informed in no uncertain terms this time. No uncertain terms. He's not have to deduce this. This is revealed to him that Sarah will bear him a child. Again, what? How? Impossible, Abram must have been thinking. See, up until this time, God had promised to bless Abraham and to give him children. But he's never directly spelled out exactly how that was going to happen. It was heavily implied, I believe. And I believe that Abram should have been able to figure that out, especially when he said, no, it's not Eliezer, no, it's not Hagar, but you're going to have a child. When, when, he, when he exhausts all human convention, Abram, you'd think, would get the idea that, well, maybe God's got something special for me. God is fully aware of Sarah's physical situation. But the God that we worship, the God that created this universe with the word of his mouth, 
that God is not bound by nature. He's not bound by Sarah's physical situation. The God of the universe is not bound by the laws of the universe or the laws of nature. The thought of her having a child, much less kings that would come from her, was so apart from Abraham's sense of reality that he falls on his face and laughs. The last time we saw in this chapter Abraham falling on his face, it was to worship. But this time he laughs. We might deduce that this laughter, or I would like to deduce anyway, that this laughter is not so much from Abraham doubting God as it was from him sensing the sense of irony here. You know, that's really what humor is, isn't it? Humor humor is really irony. When things don't match up in, in a certain way, then it makes us laugh. And some people are just really adept at pointing that out, and they do it in a really cool way, so we call them comedians. But a comedian really is someone who's really adept at the art of irony. And so maybe, just maybe, uh, Abram or Abraham was expressing irony here by laughing. There's always a debate when a biblical text doesn't say something directly, and that's the case here as well. Some commentators conclude that this laughing of Abraham is mocking. It's mocking doubt. Others say it's a sign of great happiness. The truth is probably somewhere in between those two. At any rate, God doesn't respond to Abram's laughing in any negative way at all. He will respond to Sarah's laughing with a little bit of a rebuke. But we can't really be dogmatic here because God doesn't respond. Again, Abram is speaking in his heart. And then in verse 18, Abram says something out loud. Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Oh, Abraham... Might you wake up one of these days? God has just promised him something directly. This is the God who really sees. This is the God who had called him. This is the God who's already rescued him several times. But this is going to be a biggie. That's why I say Genesis 17 is a critical chapter in Genesis. He's still stuck on Ishmael. And in response to Abraham's concern for Ishmael, and I, listen, I'm, I'm appreciative that he loves that boy. I mean, I would think less of him if he didn't love Ishmael. But he's not connecting the two. His love for Ishmael is blinding his response to God. And that's not good. So in response to Abraham's concern for Ishmael, God answers Abraham and specifies that the son born to Sarah would be the heir. No uncertain terms. Ishmael would be blessed, but he would not be the heir of the promise. Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Now, I'm I'm fairly certain that that Abraham knew who Sarah was, but I think it's interesting that Sarah, your wife. You see? Sarah, your wife. That's who I've been talking about, your wife. I find that little detail interesting. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. That's the third time that everlasting is used in this passage with regard to this covenant. Then in verse 20, And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. 
Behold, I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. And when he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. The promise to Ishmael will be fulfilled, indeed, just like God had said it would. And that fulfillment is found in a passage that we'll study later in Genesis chapter 25, verses 12 through 18. Then God names the son who would be born to Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Yitzhak. You've heard of Yitzhak Rabin in Israel, the same name, Yitzhak, which is motivated by the Hebrew verb that means, and he laughed. Isaac's name would be a perpetual reminder to his daddy and to his mama, too, of Abraham's laughter and then Sarah's laughter afterwards. We'll we'll see in the next chapter, Sarah will laugh as well at the thought of bearing a child at such an advanced age. And at one level, I can understand. Because this violates every one of the laws of nature that that they knew at the time or that we know now. Women just don't have children that far after the period of menopause. But her laughter will receive a harsher response from God, giving a hint that her laughter might have been of a bit of a different nature as Abraham's laughter, reflecting perhaps a greater degree of doubt. Isaac's name stresses both God's blessing and human doubt. We need to see that God does, just because one wasn't in the line of blessing of the covenant, didn't mean that God wouldn't bless them. Sometimes we get the idea, especially from reading Genesis and through the Old Testament, that the Jews were the only people in the ancient world that God thought anything about. And that's just not simply the case. Every now and then we'll have somebody come on the scene that's not of the Jewish nation, that, that is a believer in Yahweh, that is a believer in God, that is a, one who does have righteousness by grace through faith. We saw that earlier already in Melchizedek. Melchizedek didn't even know Abraham, yet he comes, and he, Melchizedek is considered by the text, it seems to me, to, to have a faith that's even stronger than Abraham's faith at that time. You have people like Balaam that come into the, to the narrative at, at another time that, that do seem to at least know something about Yahweh. There's a debate about whether or not he's a, a follower of Yahweh, but, but there are people periodically that will they'll come onto the scene in the narrative that are outside the Jewish community that are saved, if I could use that terminology. You see, from Genesis chapter 12 on, it's not a record of human history. It's a record of the history of the outworkings in one family, Abraham's family, because there was great responsibility with this family to be a blessing, not just to, not just to be blessed himself, but to be a blessing. Remember that from Genesis 12 to the rest of the world. So we see that there are other people in the world that God blesses, and Ishmael is going to be one of them. Ishmael's innocent. He had nothing to do with the choice of Sarah and, and Abraham, and, and certainly Hagar doesn't seem like she had much choice in the matter either. Ishmael is innocent. God's not going to put his thumb and boot Ishmael out. He blesses him. It's just that Ishmael is not in the promised line. I don't think, it's, it's difficult to say with, with certainty like so many other things in this passage, I don't think Ishmael had exercised the faith of his father Abraham. The, the text describes him as a well, wild 
donkey of a man later, earlier on. Which, and you can't go by somebody's behavior as to whether they're a believer in, in Yahweh or not. But it doesn't seem as though Ishmael, at least it never tells us that he followed the pattern of his father Abraham. But he was still blessed, nevertheless, by association with Abraham. How much he enjoyed those blessings, I don't know. But kings came from him. Blessings different back then than it is now. Even, even a generation or two ago, especially when people lived on farms, you didn't hear very many people lived on farms that had one or two kids, did you? How many kids do they have live on a farm? Twenty? You know, I, I don't know. A bunch. However many, however many is humanly possible because they needed the help on that farm. And, and so the, the children were a great significance because it was a great source of blessing. Now, in our culture today, we really don't, we don't do that. Most, most people are try, attempting to limit the size of their family rather than expand it. So you, you see, by the virtue of the fact that he had 12 kids, and, and they were royal kids as well, that Ishmael is certainly blessed. So God takes care of Ishmael as well. God is a kind God. He's a God of chesed, a God of mercy, kindness, love, loyal love. And he doesn't just throw Ishmael out. That's why in, in, that, in that song, El Shaddai, if it truly is about Hagar, it's a beautiful line. And to the outcast on her knees, you are the one who, you are the God who really sees. So God sees all. We need to certainly remember that. Abraham's compliance with the prescription of circumcision is then recorded in the final verses of the chapter, verses 23 through 27. Read along with me, if you would. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all the servants who were born in the house, and all who were bought with money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had said to him. I like this. This is instant obedience. In verse 24, now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael, his son. And all the men of his household who are born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Now, if a modern editor, perhaps for a magazine or a novel or any kind of literature would have looked at this passage, I think they would have probably cut down the number of words because it almost seems to be redundant. We already know how old Abraham is, don't we? The text tells us earlier that it had been 13 years, so we already know that Ishmael is 13 years old. Why repeat this? Why such detail in such a short length? And why the repetition? Well, the first thing is, in the Hebrew mind, repetition was very important. And to a Hebrew speaker... They like to say the same things over and over again, perhaps in just a different way. That's the way that they learned, apparently. And in, in a culture that learns in an oral way, that would make sense, wouldn't it? We, when we have something in writing, we can, just, we, can, we can go back to it later and we can make a mental note. And we can put a star by it. We can highlight it and we come back and read it again. But if it's an oral transmission, then to, to repeat something in several different ways helps somebody memory peg it. So it makes sense to me. But it also emphasized the importance of what they were saying. And this, while it almost seems like a throw-in paragraph, the obedience of Abraham is not so much a throw-in paragraph, because once again we learn of Abraham's age. Once again we realize that apart from God's intervention, this is a hopeless situation. But Abram obeys. And God is going to do exactly what he said he was going to do. 
You're going to face hopeless situations if you have not already at some point, either personal interactions, health conditions, you know, no matter what it may be. We, we may face a hopeless situation from a national standpoint before it's all over. It seems to be going that way sometimes. But it's only hopeless in our eyes. Looking at it from our perspective, it may be hopeless. Looking at it from Abraham's perspective, it was hopeless apart from God's intervention. Oh, that's, what, that's one of the, the, the primary things we need to learn from this chapter. Some things are hopeless. They are. They truly are, apart from God's intervention. But if God's with you, if he's on your side, and you trust him to affect the best outcome for his own glory, which is going to be the best one for you, then you're going to realize that that hopelessness becomes, in the Greek, elpis, a confident expectation of what's going to happen in the future. C.S. Lewis wrote, by definition, <clears throat> by definition, miracles must, of course, interrupt the usual course of nature. But if they are real, they must, in the very fact of so doing, assert all the more the unity and self-consistency of total reality at some deeper level. I want to read that last phrase again because it's so powerful. In the very act of doing so, assert all the more, all the more, the unity and self-consistency of total reality at a deeper level. Sarah, bearing a child at 90 years of age, after not being able to do so during her normal childbearing years, qualifies, I think, as interrupting the usual course of nature. It was a miracle. But this miracle was performed within the unity and self-consistency of the total reality of the infinite perfections of God and his plan. You see, the total reality is not necessarily our perception, what we see in terms of the problem. If we're going to talk about total reality, we have to talk about the fact that if God is for us, who can be against us? That I am a child of the living God, that he loves me so deeply that he sent his son to die as a substitute for me. That's total reality. Sometimes we get so focused on the problem, and there are problems. I understand that. Terrible things that people go through. But that's not the totality of the reality. You remember Elisha and his servant? We studied it last Sunday night. Elisha and his servant, when they're going into Dothan, and the servant's scared because the, 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 the Syrians, basically, are moving on them. And Elisha prays, Oh, Lord, let, let this person see what I'm seeing. Just once, just a glimpse. You remember the story? The servant's eyes were open, and there were more of them than there were the people that were attacking. We also learn in Zechariah that God himself is a wall of fire. There's not just a wall of fire. May God be the wall of fire that stands between you and someone else. That's the totality of the reality. We're just seeing a portion of it. We don't have all the facts. We're not smart enough to see it. And you know who else doesn't see it all either? That's Satan too. Satan's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He's not omni-anything. Now he's been around. He's omni-old. He's been around a long time. <laughs> You know, so he has the benefit of experience. 
But we need, we need, someday we need to come to grips with the unity and the self-consistency of the totality of reality. And the totality of the reality is that you are a child of God. And I am too. And that God loves me deeply. And nothing is going to get to me that hasn't passed through his divine fingers first. And if it got through, then it was intended to get through. And he's got a way for you to get through it. He's either going to rescue you through it or from it. And, by, and part of the rescue may be taking you home. That may be part of the rescue. But that's not such a bad deal either. To be absent from the body and face to face with the Lord in a place of no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. All the old things have passed away. That's total reality. Heaven is total reality. It's not an illusion. It's not a myth. That's total reality. So when we take into account our interactions with God, when Abraham takes into account his interactions with God, he can't just look at the facts of the moment as he sees them. He needs to look at the bigger picture. And that's if God says something, he's going to do it. If he said something, he's going to do it. He is faithful to his words, and the law of nature is no barricade to him. Won't stop him. Won't slow him down at all. And in the same way, what God has promised for you, he's going to deliver to you. That's a promise. And while we may wonder, like Abraham and Sarah, how can this happen? It seems impossible. I can't figure anything out here. We may wonder that. But the next time you do, I want you to laugh in your soul and remember this. Remember that God's got you exactly where he wants you. As soon as those words cross your mind, I can't do this. The only way this is going to happen is if the Lord intervenes. Gotcha. That's exactly what he wants. Now he can use you. Now you can grow in grace. We need to remember that the laws of nature were set into their function by the creator of those laws. That's God himself. And he can interrupt those laws anytime he so chooses. And it's not just for Abraham and Sarah. He can interrupt them for you too. Today's a very special day in, in my thinking. Memorial Day or Memorial Day weekend. Tomorrow being Memorial Day. It's a day where we remember sacrifices that others have made for us. Men, women, husbands, wives, sons, daughters have had lives sacrificed on the field of battle so that we could sit here in freedom today. A nation that will not remember its heroes, a nation that will not remember those who have sacrificed so that we could have the freedom that we have right now, does not deserve to be a nation. When, when we forget, and when we, do, when we demonstrate a lack of respect to those who have given so much sacrificially, when that day comes, and I don't think it has, but if that day ever comes, we ought to just roll it up and head to New Zealand. Because we wouldn't deserve the peace and freedom that we enjoy. We should be grateful for the sacrifice that others have made for us. And that's, I just mentioned the military because this is Memorial Day, but that's any sacrifice someone else makes for us. Mothers and fathers make incredible sacrifices. We, we, don't, we don't stress it as, as much, but we should be grateful to our parents for the incredible sacrifices they made for us as well. Honor your mother and father. It's the first commandment with a promise. 
But this weekend, our minds are on our military and those who have given their lives. And not just their lives, but some people have given their lives in other ways. There are people who have landed on or stepped on landmines, and they don't have a foot anymore or a leg anymore. There are some that have come back that have no arms or legs. Perhaps they're, they're scarred. They've given their life in a very real way as well. They, they don't have the normal function anymore. There's a tremendous sacrifice that's made. And there's also a tremendous sacrifice that is made by the parents, the husbands and wives, that send, and the children, that send these folks out to battle. And we should never, ever forget that. Sacrifice. And, and I can't help end without recalling to mind the greatest sacrifice that was ever made. And that's the sacrifice of God the Father sending his son into battle knowing for all eternity full well what the outcome would be. When we send our sons and daughters into battle, we, we pray for them fervently that they would come home in one piece. God the Father knew full well what he was sending his son into. And he knew exactly what was going to happen to that son. Now that's sacrifice. Sacrifice really of a whole other level. For God so loved the world, that's you and me, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him never perish, but have everlasting life. Now that's sacrifice. When sons and daughters go off to war, generally speaking, because today's a volunteer army, they're going because they love their country, and because their countrymen love them, or at least they perceive it that way. Paul makes it very clear in this in the epistle to the Romans that when that sacrifice was made for us, we were God's enemies, not his friends. All the more. If, if you happen to have come this morning, and I don't think there's any happen to about it in God's providence, but, it, but if you are here this morning and you've never, you, you've never appropriated the benefit of that sacrifice for yourself, I do want to say this. Long, long time ago, a Philippian jailer asked the Apostle Paul, what do I need to do to be saved? And, and really what he's saying is, what do I need to do to receive the benefit of what it is you've been talking to the people of Philippi about? And, he, and the answer was, was pretty simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. I've read a lot of gospel tracts. Some of them are good and some of them are not so good. But that's the one condition for the receiving of eternal life. Sometimes gospel tracts have five, six conditions in them. no. It really all boils down to one essential. Those other ones are all peripheral things that may have to do with a denomination or a particular person's view. There's one essential, and that's the only one I'm concerned with. And that's faith alone in Christ alone. For by grace we've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know, it would be a, it would be a real shame to live in a country like the United States for whom so many have died that we can enjoy our freedom and then live in such a way as that we don't enjoy freedom at all. Just, just throw it out the window. But it's a much, much bigger mistake, my friend, to be the recipient of an offer as wonderful as the offer of salvation that was made possible by the greatest sacrifice ever made and to turn it down. That would really be a shame. So on this Memorial Day weekend, I want us to remember the sacrifices that have been made for us on a human level. But if you happen to have come in and you've never received the free gift of salvation, I, I implore you, I can't make you, 
But boy, I implore you, consider Jesus Christ today and what he's done for you. We all have that need, and he's the only one that can make that need. And the sacrifice that was paid was dear. And if we try to get to heaven in any other way, our Heavenly Father says, wait a minute, hold on. I sacrificed my son for you, and you want to try to be good enough to get into my presence? I don't think so. Nobody can be good enough, but Jesus Christ was the only one. Trust in him for eternal life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that there are times in our lives when you put us in situations that look hopeless to us. And from a human perspective, they are. But from the perspective of total reality, self-consistency and total reality, they are not. For you're on our side. And the laws of nature don't hinder you. They don't restrict you. So, Father, help us to fall on our face and worship you, not, not with laughter reflecting doubt, but with the confident expectation that you love us so much that you're going to do the very, very best for us because we're your children. Help us to, in turn, faithfully obey you so that we can enjoy the relationship that we have with you on this life, knowing that we'll be in heaven with you forever because of what Jesus Christ did for us. And also, I do want to say a, a special prayer this morning for those families in our country who have, whose loved ones did not come back from recent wars. I know there's a great void this weekend. And I do pray that your love will fill the vacuum in their souls. And that they would, especially those who are believers, would understand that they will see that child or daughter again, husband or wife. Thank you for their sacrifice. And we thank you for the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.